Just from a practical perspective, writing legal thrillers from the prosecutor's perspective is really difficult. Um, if you think about most legal thrillers, they're usually from the defense side because you can get off the innocent client. Um, whereas prosecutor, you're prosecuting someone and you're the narrator, you're the protagonist, you know, the slash hero, whatever. I mean, if you don't get the right guy, then you're kind of a dope. Uh, so. <laughs> Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with me, as usual, is my uh, lovable co-host, Lester Tate. Lester, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And the listeners should know my co-host has gone to Hollywood now with, <laughs> with the Georgia Bulldogs to pull them through. And being a tech guy, I'm sadly left at home uh, today, but I do wish the wish the dogs well in their endeavor to repeat tonight. Yeah, we're excited to be here in uh, Southern California. We're in, in, I'm taping this from downtown Los Angeles right now. I'm, we'll be going to the game later this afternoon. Um, and it is cold and rainy in Southern California. Well, isn't there a I song about that? It never rains yeah, in Southern it, California or something. The, the song is wrong. Um, it's it's cold and wet here. Um, but you got but, a door feel for tonight, so it shouldn't, indoor, right. shouldn't change the the game. Have you got uh, have you have you got a prediction for tonight's uh, game? Uh, no, I'm too superstitious to do stuff like that. See, being a tech guy, I'm always glad to opine, you know, on uh, on Georgia football. But my prediction is, and I, and I don't mean to jinx them in any way, but my prediction is I think it's just have a superior team to TCU as long as they don't start fumbling and throwing interceptions and getting penalties, which has been something that Georgia has been great about not doing you know, all all year long, they may play down to their opponent's level, yeah. bit, but they don't make those stupid mistakes. And uh, of course, in the Ohio State game, I think they had one interception, and it's one of the things that made it a lot closer. So, right, barring, barring a bunch of turnovers and penalties, I'm I'm predicting the dogs win. Well, from from your mouth to God's ears, let's hope, and we're pulling for the dogs and go dogs. But we're, I'm delighted to be able to tape this with you while I'm here and you're back in Georgia because we have an incredible guest uh, with us today, Lance McMillan. We're delighted to have him. Let me tell you a little bit about Lance. He's a, a law professor and an author and has authored several legal thrillers we're going to talk about. Um, so we're going to be looking forward to diving into those books and Lance's reason for writing. Let me tell you a little bit more about his background. Uh, Lance obtained his uh, Bachelor of Arts from University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Phi Beta Kappa, and is Juris Doctor from University of Georgia School of Law, Summa Cum Laude, and Order of the Coif. He is a full-time professor of law at Atlanta's John Marshall School of Law, where he teaches torts, constitutional law, federal courts, constitutional law seminar, 
First Amendment seminar, white collar crime, domestic relations, depositions, law office management, remedies in context, and scholar, scholarly writing. Professor McMillan joined the Atlanta's John Marshall faculty in 2007. Before embarking on a teaching and writing career, Professor McMillan wore many different hats in the legal profession, including those of civil litigator, commercial arbitrator, and certified mediator. The focus of his practice centered primarily on complex litigation, class action prosecution, and defense, business torts, constitutional torts, and discrimination. In 2002, he became a founding partner of the law firm of McMillan and Camp LLP. Following its exception, the firm was approved as lead counsel by numerous federal and state courts in class and collective actions arising under the Telephone Consumer Protection Act and the Fair Labor Standards Act. In this role, Professor McMillan successfully negotiated several six and seven figure settlements. As a neutral, Professor McMillan mediated and arbitrated over 100 active lawsuits. Professor McMillan's writing career is just as diverse. He is a novelist and creator of the Atlanta Murder Squad series. The first book in the series, The Murder of Sarah Barton, won a prestigious Bragg, B-R-A-G, medallion, and became the number one bestseller legal thriller on Amazon. His nonfiction work has appeared in such legal journals as the North Carolina Law Review, the Washington and Lee Law Review, the Wisconsin Law Review, the Alabama Law Review, the Tennessee Law Review, the Southern Cal Interdisciplinary Law Journal, and the American Journal of Trial Advocacy. He also contributed a chapter for Lawyers in Your Living Room, Law on Television, a book project from the American Bar Association, and that also featured essays from actors Sam Watterson and James Wood. Woods. A number of federal and state courts, including an opinion by Judge Richard Posner of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, have cited Professor McMillan in their opinions. Professor McMillan is married to Justice Carla Wong McMillan of the Georgia Supreme Court. A little bit where, uh, about Atlanta's John Marshall Law School, uh, where Lance is a professor. It is a private, nonprofit law school in Atlanta, Georgia. It was founded in 1933 and named for John Marshall, the fourth Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. Atlanta's John Marshall Law School is accredited by the American Bar Association. It was among the first Southern law schools to integrate. It is in Midtown Atlanta, and is accredited by the American Bar Association. It offers five JD programs, full-time day, part-time day, part-time evening, accelerated spring start, and a criminal justice certificate program led by MacArthur Genius Fellow, Jonathan Rapping. Lance's books that we're gonna be talking about a little bit more are To Kill a Lawyer, uh, 2021, Death to the Chief, The Murder of Sarah Barton, and his latest novel is A Hard Way or Hard Way to Die, the fourth in the Atlanta Murder Squad series and takes place at a Georgia bar, a state bar annual meeting on Jekyll Island. Lester, we've been to a few. Uh, our uh, fair, yeah, our fair I, I think that's the one. Is it, uh, Professor, isn't that the one where you kill off a state bar president? It is, yes. Uh, so, uh, well, Lance, know. Lance, welcome to the show. I just couldn't pass up talking about Jekyll Island and all the state bar annual meetings we've attended. 
I see these people on Twitter that say I feel attacked. You know, I feel murdered uh, (laughs) uh, with this. But uh, it's it is. uh, And I have uh, I've been reading the uh, murder of Sarah Barton. And it's it's so great to read all these places that, you know, you know, like uh, Robin in Los Angeles. I mean, I grew up watching dragnet and adam 12 you know and they were all all over you know the the city of los angeles is sort of a character and the you know the city of atlanta and the state of georgia are sort of characters uh in 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 your books i think i was born in fulton county so i'm you know writing about what i know Uh, that's the first lesson in writing isn't it yeah right about what you know well lance we're we're delighted to have you here um you've got a remarkable uh career um i I wanted to talk first before we getting get into your writing process and why you decided to start writing um fiction novels let's talk a little bit about your your teaching at at your your job as a full professor at at john marshall law school um you know that's a that's first of all, it's neat. I love that, but it's also full time. I mean, you're you. It, I just read all the classes you teach. I think you must teach every class uh, given at, at at John Marshall. Um, tell us a little bit about that. How many students you have, and how many classes you're teaching this semester, and why you like it. Yeah, uh, I love it. Uh, it is a great uh, job. I think it's the best job in the legal profession, because uh, you get to think about the law, um, study the law, talk about the law, um, and do so in a way that's interesting that gives you a lot of freedom uh, to explore your, your interests. Um, yeah, I forgot I taught some of those classes <laughs> 15 years. Um, but my, my two favorite classes, the ones I've taught the vast majority of time are torts and constitutional law. Um, and, and torts is my favorite by far, just the facts. You can't invent the, the facts uh, you see in some of these tort cases. Uh, so it's a fun class to, to teach and it, it's a first year class and it's nice to um, get the students, you know, while they're fresh. Um, you know, I come in the first day of law school with them, don't even introduce myself. I just call a student <laughs> right off the bat nicely. Um, and they don't know what hit them, um, but, <laughs> but they're I, engaged. I remember those days. Yeah, they're, they're engaged. Four years ago. Um, I think it's more of a shock for them than for us, because uh, I don't know they get that same thing in undergrad. I know they don't. Um, so it's, it's kind of a different educational world they grew up in. Um, but it's, it's a privilege to kind of shape the next generation of lawyers and uh, especially at our school. I mean, we're very egalitarian. You know, we you know, we call ourselves an opportunity law school. There's you know a lot of first generation uh, lawyers, which I appreciate because I was I was a first generation college student, um, and you know just to be able to you know democratize the profession in that way to give chances to you know students who have big dreams, but you know other schools you know don't want to give them a chance, uh, you know, it, it's an honor and, and I, just, I love it. So. You know, uh, I, I'm, I'm always interested in uh, unusual legal credentials, mainly because uh, one of my unusual legal credentials is I'm the only lawyer I know that 
uh, made a law review, but was but never made an A in law school. <laughs> and uh, I, I have a standing bet if anybody can find somebody else with that, I'll buy them dinner and a bottle of wine at any restaurant in Atlanta they want. I've never had to pay. But you have a very, I think, unusual uh, uh, credential that, in my mind at least, gives you a huge competitive advantage in teaching people about the law. You know, typically law professors, you know, graduate at the top of their class. They go clerk for federal judges and then they go for some to some big firm where they're an associate for three or four years. And that's their experience in private practice. You may be the only law professor I've ever met who was the founder of a law firm and, you know, had had your own law firm. And uh, uh, I'd be interested uh, to hear how that maybe uh, informs your teaching of the law in a way that's maybe different from folks who've only been in big firms, which is, like I said, more the norm, you know, for law professors. Yeah, I think that's true. Not that I'm the only one, but it, it's true of our school in general to brag on our faculty a little bit. Um, there's no doubt in my mind, it's unofficial, but we have more combined trial experience than all the rest of the law schools in Georgia combined, probably just Mike Mears himself. Uh, you know, Mike Mears probably has <laughs> 300 trials. You know, he's a you know he's a legend in the Georgia legal community. He probably had his own firm at some point during his his career. But I mean, John Rapping had a, has a ton of trials. We have a lot of criminal defense, um, you know, public defenders uh, and who who did that work. Um, that that's kind of what we look for in the in a faculty is you know practical. Uh, experience, whereas a lot of law schools, the more you practice, you know, they take that as a sign that you're not serious about scholarship. And it's almost a black mark uh, that you practice too long. Um, so it's not just me and John Marshall. I mean, it's the, it's the whole whole faculty. And it does matter, um, uh, especially, you know, with our student body, who's more likely you know, the doors of big law, you know, probably not going to be open to them. Certainly coming out, there, there's some who gravitate towards their, that way after they've been practicing a while. But a lot of our students are going back to small town communities. They're gonna form their own practice. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I try to you know, incorporate some stories about that, um, you know, into my teaching um, because that's some of the issues they're gonna to have to face, um, you know, when, the, when they're out there. Um, and, and so it definitely does, you know, uh, you know, you know, make a difference. Um, I, I think in, you know, in, in how I you know, try to reach these students who you know, might be on the same path uh, that I was on once upon a time. Yeah, I saw that you one of your classes was uh, called law office management. Well, I went to Emory Law School. But they wouldn't even. <laughs> consider something like that. Uh, no, no practical uh, knowledge given to us at Emory whatsoever. It was all academic and theoretical. And uh, but I love that that you offer that. And and it comes from a personal basis. You, you have personal knowledge, but also you're really trying to help these young students. Here's what you need to know to meet a payroll uh, how to deal with a client who's a real live walking person sitting across the table from you. You know, that's less one. That's one of our standards Lester and I have is if you're a real lawyer, you've actually had a person with a problem who's a live human being sit across your table from you and tell you about their issues. Uh, 
Um, so I love that you that you have offered that type of class there too. Yeah, I, that was earlier on in my career when I was closer to it. Um, and it, yeah, it was very nuts and bolts uh, and practical. And this is what you have to do. And I, I, the materials I used were the same materials that I had used, you know, you know, um, you know when I when I did it, you know, years before. Um, and, and and so I wanted to you know make that as you know close to the reality um as i could now i think now we have practitioners practitioners who you know who have their own firm these days doing it because i mean one of the things that changed since i had my firm was the, the software yeah. uh, and and i kind of was before that kind of changed that whole dynamic so i'm a little behind these days on that um but yeah you know I, I I will tell you too. You know the proof's always in the pudding. And I had a uh, law clerk that was one of your students, and who after she passed the bar, briefly uh, uh, worked for me. She found a job closer to home, and uh, uh, in, in addition to really loving you and saying you were her favorite professor, just excelled at helping me deal with clients. And, uh, and so uh, it was Beth Johnston is her name. And uh, it was just, just really good at that. And having seen other lawyers that had gone to perhaps more, uh, uh, I don't want to use the word prestigious because I'm not convinced the U.S. News and World Report rankings convey prestige. But, uh, you know, uh, having gone to some of these other law schools that are more focused on big law, clerkships and that type thing, I, I think you really do put out the product that you say you're going to put out. Well, that's, that's great to hear. And, you know, Beth's wonderful. Um, and that's why I tell the students, I mean, their whole life, they've been playing this academic game that measures a very small set of skills. But once you're a lawyer, I mean, there's a whole other, you know, basket or baskets of, of skills that go into you know, being a, being successful. Uh, and I tell them, you don't have to play the academic game uh, in, anymore. And if you're willing to work hard and you have grit, um, these other skills that you have, um, I mean, can make you a very successful lawyer. Um, so. Yeah, are you teaching con law this semester? Yes. I, I'm, I'm thinking that might be an interesting semester in con law. <laughs> yeah, it's a full year class, uh, but this is the semester that we get into the changes um, from from last summer, uh, and we'll see how that goes. Uh, I mean, I've taught con law a long time too. Mm -hmm. and I don't like it as much as torts. The facts aren't as interesting. Um, it can be dry sometimes. You know, the market participant exceptions, the dormant commerce clause, uh, being an example. <laughs> um, but it changes all the time, uh, and it. Yeah, that can create some cynicism. Um, uh, indeed, especially over our United States Supreme Court. Um, yeah, but it's a hard. You know, it's a it's a hard constitutional interpretation. Is just hard, um, and you you can read a majority and say, "Oh, that that sounds right." Then it's five four, and the the, the dissents making good points too, and you know, you have these issues that turn on these very narrow things. By the end of the day, we all know it depends who's sitting in the seat that the results you're going to get, even though the reasoning you can make 
good ar- good arguments both for and against the reasoning, but it just matters who's in the chair. Um, you know, the best advice I ever got uh, uh, about uh, when I started law school, I had a friend who actually went to Yale Law School. He'd gone his first year before I started. And he said, if you ever get stumped on a con law question, just use a balancing test. And I thought that was uh, <laughs> that was about the best advice I, I ever got. You know? yeah. That's good. And then I was going to ask you about torts, which is your favorite. Uh, I, I know you cover, especially for first years, the classic cases like Pinoyer v. Neff, I guess, and International Shoe, those kind of things. But do you ever take fact patterns from cases that you're reading about in the Daily Report, things going on in Georgia? Do you ever use those cases to, to teach your students? Uh, so, sometimes. Uh, I mean, more probably as hypotheticals as opposed to, you know, studying, yeah. um, you know, the, the, the opinion. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it, that's the thing about being a, a professor that there's always material, you know, floating about that, even if I'm not planning on it, you know, a, a question can come up in the context of the dialogue in the class. And then I, then it, you know, I remember that, you know, case and throw it back at the student, um, and, you know, and see what happens. Um, have you have you ever used any of uh, Justice Wong McMillan's opinions, uh, uh, taught any of those or critiqued those uh, uh, in your class? Well, not critiqued, but um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, uh, you know some of them. Uh, there was a, I think it, I don't know if she wrote it or if she's on the panel. It was, a, it was a Facebook social media type thing about parental liability for the post of their teenager um, and leaving it up and responsibility like that. Um, and, and so I, I know I've talked about that in the context of my first amendment seminar class, um, you know, at least, you know, once. Uh, <laughs> so. That's neat. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about your, your other career uh, that you have going on simultaneously, another full-time job, it seems like, and that's, that's writing legal fiction. Um, I, I, you know, Lester and I love to read and that's one thing that's kind of a neat thing about being a lawyer. You read all day in your job and then you go home, you like to read more. Uh, but we both love to read and we love to talk to authors. So, um, I couldn't wait to talk to you about this. Why did you decide to go into writing fiction? You know, it's just, I think it's something I always wanted to do. I mean, I I read um, presumed innocent when I was a senior in high school. Yeah. Uh, when I was a freshman in college, I read The Firm, uh, then, you know, A Time to Kill, you know, then everything when Grisham came out uh, with a new book. Um, and it just, I just had the idea, at some point I would like to do that. Um, and, you know, it tinkered with certain ideas over years, never really, you know, got far with it. Um, and then once I got tenure, you know, it gave me a little more, you know, flexibility in terms of, you know, what I, you know, what I wrote and I just sat down and, you know, try to come up with a book. Um, now it was a lot harder than what that sounds like. Cause I mean, this took years off and on. I don't even know how long it took. Uh, I mean, it, it may have been five, six, seven years. I, I really don't know. Um, and you know, I have it 
get stuck, ignore it, go back, and then eventually, you know, I, I pressed through and got a draft done and kind of been off to the races since then. Yeah, that's so cool. Do you do you start with an outline or just you just start writing? Uh, well, I didn't for the first book, and that was a mistake. That's why <laughs> maybe six and seven years. Uh, you know, I had, <laughs> had ideas in my head, and, and because these are kind of mystery type books too, what I learned from the first book was I don't have to have an outline of everything, but I gotta know the clues that I'm going to use to you know, eventually solve the mystery. Uh, and I didn't have that with the first book as I was writing it. Um, and that was the roadblock I kept coming, you know, back uh, to again and again. And I had to go back and, you know, reinvent that as I, as I wrote. And one of the things when I wrote that book, it was just, you know, I was of the school you write when you're inspired, which is not the right school. Um, <laughs> and, and and so I would start like, hey, this is in chapter one. And I think, well, I got this good idea for three fourths of the way down in the book. So I wrote that. It, it was not linear at all, all over the place, which was, was a, you know, another problem. And the, the very last paragraph that I, I wrote that completed the, the first draft um, was it stuck kind of near the end but you know not in the last few pages um just to kind of show that it was just very sporadic um but i mean that was like the moment uh like i finished a draft it was actually i think it's the best paragraph i've ever written uh up to that point and, and actually since um but it wasn't the last paragraph of the book it was you know a little before that just stuck somewhere because i was just plugging holes learn my lesson and much more linear with the books um, two through four um, and knowing the clues. Like I will not start until I know how I'm going to solve the puzzle. <laughs> um, and I can fill the other gaps fine, you know, writing, but I got to know the solution um, and everything hinges on that. Once I have the solution, I can start. So, you know, uh, and, and I, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Grisham fan, too. I, I, I think I'd read A Time to Kill right before I went out, le left Big Law to go hang a shingle in Cartersville, Georgia. You know, so I felt like I actually learned something, you know, from A Time to Kill. But I know Grisham said, you know, he'd get up at five o'clock in the morning. He'd write so long each day. Stephen Pressfield, who is not a legal thriller author, but writes a lot of historical fiction, wrote a book. I think the name of it is The Art, The, the, the War, War of Art. And War of uh, Art. His, one of his sayings is, put your, put your ass where your heart wants to be, basically saying, sit down and, you know, spend time on it every day instead of waiting for inspiration. So do you have some... Uh, do you now have some system that you go about or some dedicated time each day, week, month that you write or uh, is it is it still sort of waiting for the muse to come? It's not waiting for the muse, but I don't have a set process. Um, and the Pressfield book, The War of Art, I encourage all my students to read it because it, it, it's, it's, it's bigger than just about. Um, you know, writing a book. Um, it, it's about being a professional and, and doing the work and holding yourself responsible 
you know, to the work. Um, and it's a short book. It's a great book. I read it once a year. And, you know, at the end of every semester, I have a, a I recommend books uh, to my students. And that's one of them. Um, and the students have read it, you know, love it because it's about being becoming pro. My problem is, um, you know, I don't have to necessarily be a professional novelist because I have the other job. Um, and, and so getting started on a book is, is the hard part. Um, like the first 20,000 words, it really is a struggle to get me going. And, and I, I don't write a set time every day that, that, cause I just haven't got to that point yet where I can discipline myself, um, you know, to do that. Um, but I mean, that's, you know, Stephen King's amazing. His output is amazing. Cause he, that's what he does every day. It's like nine to one every morning, same place, same time does the work. Um, so I'm much more hit or miss. Now, once I get started, like now I'm, I'm, I'm on book five and, and I try at a minimum trying to write a thousand words a day. Um, and I got five straight days of this, uh, I'm, I got a streak going, but you know, I got the national championship game today. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I had trouble sleeping last night, so I'm probably going to take a nap sometime this afternoon. And classes start tomorrow, so I got to prepare a little bit for that. Um, now I've already written 200 words, so, but I got another 800 I got to crank in somewhere. But there, there's always time. And that's the, that's the, the Grisham thing. You know, he got up 5.30 every day. I mean, in, in my problem, I waste a ton of time just on the internet, whatever. That's why I, would, I didn't really work you know, like working in big law for the, my first couple of years, just because just the six minute increments, you know, didn't, <laughs> it's not how my mind worked. It's very, I'm much more un, undisciplined uh, than that. Um, You're preaching to the choir here. Yeah. yeah. We, don't, we don't like to bill hours either. That's yeah. why we do what Did we you, do. You know, I'm I was, also curious. Yeah. I always said that billing hours suck the joy out of practicing law. So I got, I stopped yeah. it. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I've read different people like Grisham, I think, if I remember correctly, took a steno pad with him to court and would write, you know, while enduring a calendar call. Uh, I, I remember reading that Shelby Foote, when he wrote the the uh, Civil War trilogy, you know, wrote with a fountain pen, you know, and wrote like a page each day and hand corrected everything. I've read that Ace Atkins, who has written a bunch of mystery novels, pecks them out on a on a typewriter. You know, he was a reporter at one time. How do you physically uh, write your books? I try to do them now on a laptop because that saves a lot of time. But when I'm stuck. I found that handwriting can get me unstuck quicker than just working on the laptop. For part of it, when I'm on the laptop, one thing I have to do to be more disciplined, I turn the wireless off. Um, because I'm on the laptop, I mean, there's just kind of this instinctual thing, you know, well, I got to check something, you know, and, and, you know, that's a, it's a time thief. Um, and, and, but I try to do it now on, laptop. The first book was a lot of it was handwritten. Um, and that created longer time because then I got it, you know, 
type it up. Um, and that means you're correcting as you, as you go, which is not probably best practices. You, you, you want to finish the first draft as soon as possible, then circle back um, and correct. Um, but it, it, it's a lot easier trying to type it. But yeah. You shared a, a short article that you had written called How I Write. You shared that with us, and I, I hope I'll be able to share that with our listeners. Uh, this article was published in Scribe's Journal of Law Writing. I really enjoyed reading it, Lance, but I wanted to share the first, first paragraph of this article um, about what you described, the condition of not writing. I thought that was very clever. Um, and you say not writing. The condition of using any pretext as a justification for the avoidance of putting words on the blank page is the unrelenting scourge of my life as a novelist. Its allies are legion, the wife, the kids, my day job as a law professor, the grass that needs cutting, Sudoku, Twitter, playing guitar, naps, basically anything. I, I just thought that was hilarious. I hear that a lot from from writers that it's it's a discipline like anything else. Um, but I really enjoyed the way you um, described it. I, I, I felt like I was right there with you. And your last sentence is the hardest book to write is always the next one. So yeah. it sounds it sounds like you're on your next one on number yeah. five, right? I am trying. <laughs> About and twenty thousand words in. I was going to say, how many words in are you? Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll we'll definitely be looking forward to that. But let's talk a little bit about your Murder Squad series. Um, I I love legal novels. Lester does too. Um, by the way, I was going to tell you, you know, uh, a time to kill. Lester really is Jake Brigance in the office. He, his office literally overlooks the square of Cartersville, uh, and it's that old timey office with the brick walls, and uh, so. That's how I picture Jake Brigant. So, um, but let me let me talk to you about uh, your your books, or or let you talk to us about them. Um, I just finished Hard Hard Way to Die about the Jekyll Island State Bar, the Jekyll Island State Bar meeting and killing of a uh, um, a state bar president, and and I and I loved it. I I thought it was fantastic. Can't wait to read the rest of yours. Um, let's talk about where you got the idea of Murder Squad. Sounds pretty juicy. Um, and, and you've got this leading uh, actor protagonist, uh, Chance Meridian, which sounds he sounds sounds dashing. Um, so wh where do, where do you get your ideas for the 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 main characters and 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 a plot and things like that? Yeah. So the series was almost an afterthought because I wrote the first book thinking it was going to be just, you know, its own standalone. Um, but one of the things I learned about the business is people like series. Um, that, that, that's, you know, kind of the way of the, of the world uh, now, uh, unless you're, you know, already really established. Um, and, and so, you know, I have the first book. Um, but now it's going to be a series. So how do I go about that? Um, and just for things based on the first book and, you know, cause his family was murdered, um, that, which goes into the first, the first book, uh, he, he doesn't want to be a criminal defense lawyer, the, the protagonist Chance, Chance Meridian. Um, but he's kind of over being, you know, a trial lawyer too, after the first book. Um, 
And so I had to kind of create, you know, a storyline to, you know, give him something to do uh, outside <laughs> those parameters. Um, and it, so the, it starts, the second book starts with him investigating as a special attorney general, the murder of a Georgia Supreme Court justice. Um, and at the end of that, you know, you know that, that kind of builds on going the murder squad going forward. But that was that was something that was arose organically, you know, creating the first two books. Uh, that wasn't a destination um, a, at all. Um, as for plots and how I come up with them, I mean, I, I don't even know. Uh, and that, that sounds like a cop out. I mean, it's, it's really difficult. Um, and you never know what's going to, you know, inspire you. But like with book two, the murder of a Georgia Supreme Court justice at the opening of the new Georgia appellate courthouse. And so Georgia around this time opened a new courthouse. So I got, okay, that's a kind of an interesting thing. Um, you know, Supreme Court justice came down, Clarence Thomas came down. Okay, you can have someone from Washington coming down. Um, and you know, that kind of just that real life event gave me the idea of I can build something around that. Um, and it, it worked better when I killed the chief justice. I mean, uh, <laughs> why not? Uh, why not? Um, and then similarly, I think the, the, a hard way to die, you know, I've been to state bar meetings at Jack mm -hmm. Um, you know, that, uh, and it was a way to get out of, out of Atlanta too, because the first three books are in Atlanta felt like maybe need a little scenery change. Um, and you know, that was you know, a real life event just the, the conferences down there, which I've been to with my wife, uh, is okay. I can build something around that. Um, and then just try to, you know, create a plot based on, you know, you know that setting. So do you, do you sit at these conferences, like the opening of the, the, the judicial building or the state bar meeting and just sit and think about who should die in this meeting? <laughs> How can I craft a good murder with these people? Uh, you know, everyone's fictional, and uh, that's the <laughs> truth. Uh, I, I mean, <laughs> before death to the chief, which was the one about the Georgia Supreme Court justice, because um, my wife, you know, is on the Georgia Supreme Court, I had to have a very strongly worded disclaimer. Yeah, <laughs> that I bet all of this is fictional, and it really is. Uh, I, I mean. The real life stuff is the stuff like, okay, they open the courthouse, I can build something right now, but the, the characters, the people, I, I mean, most people I know aren't that interesting. I mean, you have to really create, uh, uh, you know, unreal <laughs> characters in, in, in fiction uh, to make it like some something somebody wants to read. Uh, and, and so it wasn't based on any state, real state bar president either. Um, <laughs> you know, Not even in a seersucker suit. No, I, is, is there someone like that? I hope not. I was, I was making it up and I'm like, I, I try to describe someone I didn't know. And I hope I did. I hope I didn't accidentally stumble on this. <laughs> um, do you, do you, uh, are you part of a writing group? I know a lot of authors write and then they share their, what they're writing, their drafts with each other and get feedback or do you use focus groups or, reviews i mean how do you gauge how you're doing yeah no writing group uh, or anything i know some authors use that and i've i've never even had the opportunity um and so uh, my 
I have a deep suspicion of group work you know, throughout <laughs> all my life. Uh, because I mean, really it, it's, it's writing so personal and individual. I mean, you have to just sit down like the press field and, and do the work. And you know, if you start writing for the writing group, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, maybe it works for some people. Um, so what I do, I, I write a first draft. Um, then I edit. So that's 1.0. I edit the draft. Um, that's 2.0. Uh, and then I take, that version and i have a, a team that reads it um my high school english teacher um who huge influence on my life um you know, she she reads it two of my colleagues john marshall read it and then a, a lawyer um a friend i have down here in Peachtree city um reads it um and they give me their feedback and then i go and create version 4.0 and usually it's 5.0 is the one that actually gets published um now the first one my wife read it too um and that one had a much more edits i mean i took out fifty thousand words of, oh wow part of not knowing what i was doing with the, with the first book um but um yeah and editing is where this way the big thing is just you got to get the first draft done and then, then edit um and be willing to edit and then and be willing to listen um uh, to i mean one of the things i read stephen king's book on writing which is a great book if, if you're interested in being a writer and one of the things he said was after you finish the draft go back and edit at least 10 percent and cut it out and when i first read that i was like oh no way i, I know how hard each page is mm -hmm. i'm not gonna right. cut it out i mean that, that's nuts um <laughs> But then once I started having a critical eye, you know, on the, the first book, I, okay, I can take this out and it doesn't change the story at all. I can take this out, um, you know, cut, 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 cut. Um, in, the, in the writing community, there's a phrase that, you know, murder your darlings. Like you have this great paragraph, but it didn't really go to the story. You can take it out and it doesn't change anything. And you're like, well, I really like the paragraph. Well, if it doesn't serve the story, you know, you got to take it out. Um, and that's part of the maturation learning process uh, that I've you know, been going through. Um, so I want to, so you know, I'm not a total slackered in preparing for podcasts. Uh, Robin uh, sent me uh, your uh, law review uh, article uh, defending uh, Atticus Finch. Actually, I think it was the reply brief, uh, for lack of a better term. <laughs> Uh, that uh, that defended him against the heresy, utter heresy that Malcolm Gladwell uh, published in The New Yorker, I think, a few years ago. And I was so taken by it, you know, because I'd read Gladwell's attack on Atticus Finch. And uh, you 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 wrote the brief in defense of him that I wish I could have written, you know, or had written. Um, and so I can tell, you know, that. Uh, we, we, we have a have a lot in common here. So my question to you is, is To Kill a Mockingbird the ultimate legal thriller? I think it has to be um, just for its impact on society. Um, you know, I mean, I think law review, law professors write all these law review articles, which have served important purposes and, 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 and such. And I've written a bunch. Um, 
but I mean, that book had more of an impact um, than the movie too. Uh, then, you know, all the larvae articles, um, you know, put together. And I think there's a reason for that. One of the things I've tried a little bit to do with my, my work is that, that stories are powerful teaching tools uh, in a way that, you know, academic scholarship are, are not. You know, I mean, you think you go back to Jesus, I mean, all his stories are parables. Uh, and that's how he taught was through parables um be, because that's you know people learn you know through that that kind of teaching um in in many ways um and you know to kill mockingbird was you know the story that inspired you know you know so many of us um you know ever since uh, it it inspired us so much, my, me and my husband, who's also a lawyer. Um, we named our daughter Harper, is her middle name, Alex Harper, uh, after Harper Lee. And we just felt like that was something we needed to do to honor Harper Lee. I, I think a lot of trial lawyers view Atticus Finch as the the ultimate, the ultimate trial lawyer. And and I will try to uh if it's all right with you, Lance, put your uh, law review article about Atticus Finch on our Definitely. our web on our website. Um, I read it and I loved it as well. And at the very first paragraph, you say your your conclusion about Atticus Finch. You say I conclude that Finch is a New Testament style prophet whose worldwide view propels him to this truth: love and understanding open doors, judgment and condemnation close them. And that's definitely a, a Christian outlook. Uh, and we we also like to ask our guests, do you have any sort of religious uh, tenets or do you use your faith in your work? You obviously do. Um, and and so I'm, I'm interested in that, how how it has shaped you, molded you, but but um, transforms your work where you can use your faith to get a message across just like you say Atticus Finch did. Yeah, I mean one of the things you know I think about when I'm creating, you know, my world, this world is how, how can I be different? And, and one of the differences is you know the, the narrator Chance Meridian is a Christian who, you know, thinks about his faith, struggles with his faith. I mean the, the first book is, you know, huge struggles uh, with his faith because he, he's coming from a world where it happens before the book started, but his, his wife and son were murdered. Um, and he's, you know, he has a lot of problems, you know, with, with God, you know, because of that. Um, and, you know, at the end of the book, you know, part of his journey is kind of the spiritual recognition uh, and reconciliation. Um, and, that you know um dealing with kind of the themes that you just read from my law review article uh, of, of kind of this embrace of grace and you know realizing he can't solve all the problems of the world um and because he had this kind of identity as this you know prosecutor who's going to bring justice you know um to everyone who deserved it um and just as the way things event events unfold 
he falls a little short. Um, and, and, and so, so that's part of the story of the first book. And then the, you know, the later books, not as much, but there, there are pockets of that where, I mean, his faith is still, um, you know, important to him. And, and that's what I, I wanted, you know, part of the, the story, uh, to write about that. Cause I, I don't know that that has gotten a lot of coverage, um, in books of this sort. Um, and, and so I totally, totally agree with that. Um, has not gotten much, and and I'm glad you're willing to bring that aspect of of, of people's lives out. Um, and you point out in the article that Atticus is a hero because he sacri- sacrificed part of himself, including the willingness to risk his life to make a stand against racial injustice. Uh, that's that's a powerful statement, and you know I don't know that I'm willing to risk my life in the practice of law, but I'd like to. Be, be able to say I stood up for something like against racial injustice, or I, I used my the power of my law degree to do something like that. Yeah, and you know, the, you know, the context is the Glad. I'm responding to the Gladwell article, or, or Gladwell, you know, really yeah. harsh <laughs> on Atticus. And I was trying to explain some of the things, you know, that from Atticus' point of view that you know, we, you know Gladwell. You know, didn't really appreciate um uh and, and and but to that point i mean you know once you stand in front of an angry mob who has guns and you're unarmed i mean you get a you get a pass with me <laughs> a i agree um because you know that's not easy to do one of, you know one of the things too that i that i would ask you to sort of talk about is uh I don't know that this this is just my term for it, but that the Gladwell article had what I would call anachronistic morality, you know, you know, anachronism being something that's out of time, uh, you know, you, you know, using uh, using an M-16 in the Civil War, or, you know, whatever. And uh, it seems to me to Robin's point you know, about now there are a lot of us lawyers in the I'll say the post MLK era where standing up against racism, you know, was is viewed as not really something that puts you in danger, but something that that, you know, in most quarters, at least today, draws you praise and adulation. And, uh, you know, I I mean, from my point of view, that's one of the things the Gladwell uh, uh, piece really sort of missed was that standing up was was physically endangering not even just uh, uh getting you ostracized from uh impolite society maybe and uh you spoke much more eloquently to that than i ever could in in your article and i i wish you would talk about that a little bit yeah i mean the the things that Gladwell seemed to want him to do, Atticus to do in the context of 1930s Alabama, you know, would or were futile. Um, and so it was this kind of modernist, hey, what about this? Uh, um, you know, looking back, and and again, he diminished in the stuff he did do, um, and the fact that he was, you know, trying to, you know, use a evangelical type Christian, not, no, not overtly, but the kind of mindset of turning the other cheek, loving the neighbor, even when they're wrong, um, as a way to 
have influence to change things, um, you, know, you know, for the good, um, as opposed to, you know, coming in with an M16 and just, you know, killing all the townspeople. <laughs> I mean, um, so, yeah, I mean, I agree what you're, you're saying. I mean, it was a very kind of hindsight, um, you know, biased look that missed the point that this book would everything clearly advance the cause. You know, I mean, you know, just factually, uh, you can't really debate um, you know, th that, that it made things better. And it came out at a time, especially with a movie, it came out at the right time. That's part of its influence. The early 60s within the Freedom Riders, um, you know, you know, traveling through the South and, you know, television really for the first time broadcasting to the whole, the rest of the nation, what's happening. The book came out at the right time and it served as an indictment on the conscience of the country. And just to kind of 40 years later to sweep that all away. I mean, that's what motivated me to, you know, to write the counter, you know, in the first place. Did you, I don't know if you read the book Furious Hours by Casey Sepp, which was, uh, it was about, uh, it was about Harper Lee and the novel, not, not the novel, but the true crime case that she sort of worked on, but never wrote the book about. But Harper Lee, and you were, you were talking about earlier, the, the hardest novel to write is the next one. And she wrote one and that, you know, it, it won a Pulitzer Prize and, you know, never wrote another one. As a lawyer and a novelist, any theories about why that was? Do you think it was just too hard to go back or uh, what's your assessment of that? I mean, it is curious. Um, I, I don't know uh, why. I mean, because it, it's almost an impossible, you know, book the top. Uh, like I said, right book, right time, you know, right actor playing in the movie. I, I mean, it's kind of a perfect storm. Um, and, you know, I'm sure it made her tons of money, too. So, you know, to set her off for the rest of her life. Uh, you know, I, I think she got a lot of pushback maybe on the ground in town. I don't know if the social aspect affected it. Um, it's really hard to say, but I mean, J.D. Salinger, the same thing, wrote a book, you know, Catherine Rye around that same time, you know, never, um, you know, um, did another one. Um, but part of it is, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. This is, it's hard work um, that, you know, I didn't appreciate it probably as much until I did it. I mean, it, it's, it's not easy. And there is like some self-hatred involved as you do it because you know, the first drafts are good and it's a struggle. And I mean, you got to will yourself to keep on going. Um, um, well, To Kill a Mockingbird obviously had one of the greatest trial scenes ever written. Um, in your last book, Hard Way to Die, it does not have a trial scene. Do you not have any um, requirement that there must be a fantastic trial scene in every one of your books? I do not. And this is part of, I mean, the, what I'm most proud about the first book, besides just getting it done, is I think the trial scenes are pretty good. Um, now, the, the rest of the book, maybe not as much, but I really like the trial scene. I know how much work I put into that. 
Um, but the, the other three, the next three books don't have, you know, that same courtroom dynamic. And, and part of it, it goes back to the, the series that because he's not going to be a defense lawyer for the reasons, because I, I painted myself in that corner in the first book, because I thought it was just going to be one book. And he's like, I'm not, he's never going to defend murders just because of what happened to his family. Um, and just from a practical perspective, writing legal thrillers from the prosecutor's perspective is really difficult. Um, if you think about most legal thrillers, it, they're usually from the defense side because you can get off the innocent client. Right. Um, whereas prosecutor, you're prosecuting someone and you're the narrator, you're the protagonist, you know, the slash hero, whatever. I mean, if you don't get the right guy, then you're kind of a dope. Uh, so, <laughs> but I do want to get him back in the courtroom. Um, but I just hadn't figured out yet how to do it in a way that doesn't make him a dope at the end um, necessarily um, because he was very good at that. Um, and that, that's his reputation. Um, but it just, it's really hard to write legal thrillers from a prosecutor's perspective. Uh, you don't see many of them uh, because of that. And that's kind of the practical roadblock I'm butting my head up against. That's interesting to me because, you know, you don't see a lot of British legal thrillers because they have a split practice. So the barrister who goes to court is never out sort of investigating, uh, you know, the case. Uh, but uh, and I think in a lot of ways, the legal thriller is is sort of a uniquely American uh, invention. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, Turo and then you know Grisham took it on, on steroids. I mean, they they basically created the care the the category. Uh, I mean, they had some early. I mean, witness for the prosecution, you know, the, the famous English one, but um, you know, few and far between. Uh, it is this a relatively recent uh, American, you know, type genre. Um, thank goodness for it too. Yeah, it's it's interesting that we're, we're lawyers. We're all lawyers, so we we love to read legal fiction, uh, legal thrillers. But so many non lawyers love to read it too. It, it's uh, an incredible genre, um, very popular. Um, Lance, let me ask you this: other than your own books, do you have a favorite book? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that. Um, and my favorite books, actually, it's not. A legal threat. I think it's the Prince of Tides. Uh, by oh, Pat wow. Conroy. That's my favorite book, too. We love that book. <laughs> I've read it a, a, you know, a number of times. Uh, I read it that freshman year. I did a lot of reading my freshman year of college. Um, it just took me. To, I mean, it's just amazing. It's the uh, funniest, funniest book I've ever read. The most moving book I've ever read. I mean, Yes. Great, great choice. I, I when I was in law school at Emory, I clerked for a law firm in Charleston, South Carolina, both summers, and I felt a duty to read Pat Conroy because of that. So I read Prince of Tides, and then I read every book he's ever written, and just fell in love with him. Uh, so I definitely see that as a smart choice. One of the great um, scenes in Prince of Tides for, for purposes of Robin uh, going to the football game today is the story of the Clemson-Carolina game in there when he runs the runs the punt and the kickoff back, you know, for the, but the description of football. I saw it was later published in Southern Living just as an article, you know, sort of by standalone piece. 
you know, because it was so beautifully written, such a beautifully written story about a football game. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's amazing. And Lance, we know you're on your next book. This That'll be number five. Um, you talked a little bit about how to, I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird becoming a movie. Uh, any chance that one of the Murder Squad series is going to be made into a movie? Will you be in light, your name in lights? Uh, hey, I'm open to it. You're in L.A. <laughs> so you can give me a deal. <laughs> um, if I could, I would for you. Don't worry. Yeah. I, I'd know. love to see that happen. Me too. I mean, we, my family, we have discussions as a who, who we should think play <laughs> exactly. various characters. Uh, so that's kind of fun. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know how to go about that. I would, uh, but yeah, that would be wonderful. Uh, well, you know, the, the, we just got a, uh, uh, a new TV show about a GBI, uh, you know, agent. So, uh, maybe Georgia is the new, the new LA for the, for the coming decade, you know, so. Yeah, that's uh, based on the Karen Slaughter's, um, you know, work, Will Trent, um, so. Yeah. Uh, well, Lance, we've been um, talking with you for a while now, and we appreciate your time. But as I told you, we ask every guest as our final question, um, how do you define justice or what is justice to you? Yes. Um, so. Before the third book, uh, To Kill a Lawyer, I have, I have a quote. And some of the books have quotes before them and, and some don't. Um, but um, so this quote is from the character Lou Archer, who's the protagonist detective in Ross McDonald's series, um, the Lou Archer series, which I think is probably the best detective series, you know, top to bottom. Um, and he has this quote um, that I used before the book. Um, you know, I have a secret passion for mercy, but justice is what keeps happening to people. Um, and I was thinking about that quote and the context of what is justice. And I think justice is, you know, getting what we deserve. <laughs> yes. um, in the fiction world, you know, it, that's an easy thing to, to do because uh, we create the world and the fiction world has a level of omnis not omniscience about it that allows us, you know, the author to make the reader know, hey, here's the full truth. And so we know everything um, about, you know, the villain and this is how we're going to give them justice. Um, and so you have like a Jack Reacher character who I, I love the Jack Reacher books who breaks all kinds of laws um, and immediately knows the, the contours of a situation just about and delivers, you know, rough justice. And we as the reader, you know, cheer that on. Um, but, you know, human institutions are not, you know, that infallible. Um, and, and, and so, you know, big picture justice is getting what we deserve, but we put on the law hat, it becomes a harder thing to get to. Um, and that's where process becomes more important than the substantive outcome of seeing that someone gets what, what they deserve. Um, because we create these processes to deal with a very, you know, fallen type world, you know, criminal justice system has, you know, you have the police actors, you have the jury actors, the judge actors, the prosecutor actors, and there's so many ways things can go wrong intentionally and, and unintentionally. Um, and, 
so one of the things I, I try to explore this thing, not explicitly, but implicitly in, 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 the, in the first book, The Murder of Sarah Barton, is that you have this prosecutor convinced of you know, the rightness of his ways in seeking justice, you know, get, giving, making sure someone gets what they deserve, they start spending rules. Um, and you know, a lot of times when we've learned about prosecutor misconduct, like how can they do that? I mean, but it's, they bought into some narrative that there's a bigger picture of making sure the defendant gets what you know, he or she deserves and lose sight of, you know, this isn't a novel that we have to have very real procedures in place where we're going to have, you know, innocent people in death row or innocent people, you know, executed. Um, and you know, that, that's the rub. And, and, you know, part of Chance Meridian's journey is this realization that, you know, sometimes justice isn't going to happen in this world and you got to turn over some of it to God. Um, you know, the, First book doesn't resolve who killed his wife and son. And then none of the books so far resolve mm-hmm. that. And part of when I wrote the first book was I wasn't going to resolve it because that's how life is. It's messy. Now, having written the series long enough, people want to know what happened. <laughs> and so at some point I'm going to have to, once when I figure it out, uh, <laughs> explain what actually happened. Um, because that's what, you know, there, there's, a, there's a consumer component to it as well. But in real life, sometimes you got to let it go. Um, and that's hard. Uh, mm-hmm. It's hard to turn things over to God and, and let the cosmic justice of people getting what they deserve work itself out in a way that you may never know about. Um, mm-hmm. and, and breaking the rules to get there works well in fiction, but not so well in the real world. So. Mm-hmm. Karma, I, I believe in karma. Everybody <laughs> so. And you, you may not always be around to see it happen, but. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about Willie Nelson, you know, and justice is the one thing you can always find, but you got to saddle up your horses and take a hard ride. You know, that's, uh, that's, uh, th- that's true. I'm not sure you always find it even then, but uh, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's elusive. Yeah. Well, Lance, thank you so much. It's been wonderful spending the last hour with you talking about your books. Um, Just to remind our listeners, uh, we've been talking with law professor and author Lance McMillan, and you can get his books on Amazon.com in Kindle, paperback or hardback. I I guess pretty much wherever you can get a book, his books are there. Um, You can learn more. Follow Lance at Facebook.com slash Lance Books. And you can learn more about Lance um, and follow him on Twitter at Lance McMillan. Um, and so I encourage our uh, our listeners to grab one of his books and enjoy it in front of a fire with a bourbon. That's the way I read. Um, and you'll have a wonderful evening. So, Lance, thank you so much for your time. We've really enjoyed uh, being with you. Well, yes. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right. So now uh, for our longtime listeners, you know, this is where Lester and I want to bring up a, a legal related news item that's current in the news 
that just kind of um, catches our eye uh, for whatever reason. Maybe it's a story of justice. Maybe it's one of injustice. Maybe it's something against the law profession that we don't like, what, whatever it is. But we found a couple of items that we wanted to share with our listeners. And Lester, why don't you go first? I will. Uh, my uh, uh, article today is in on the website Above the Law, which I think a lot of our lawyer listeners are uh, familiar with. It is was published today, and it's entitled Trump Attorney That's About to Take Over as a Law School Dean Gets Some Curious support. And it talks about High Point University, which is a private United Methodist Church affiliated uh, law school in uh, North Carolina. And they have selected Mark Martin as their new dean. He was chief justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, was on the Court of Appeals, taught at Regent University, and he's been named the dean. But he was also one of the ones who came up with this, in my view, sort of cockamamie theory that uh, Vice President Pence could nullify the election and uh, somehow proclaim Donald Trump to be president of the United States. And uh, But this article goes on to talk about that he gets support from an unusual source and that unusual source is Erwin Kerminsky, who you and I, I think, heard out in Hawaii at the International Society of Barristers, who's the dean at uh, the, the University of California, Cal Berkeley, you know, Berkeley, Law School. Right. And uh, so he, uh, while at the same time criticizing the uh, uh, position that was taken, Kerminsky says this, it's crucial that what occurred after the 2020 election, including the events of January 6th, not be recast as politics as usual. It was the first attempted coup in American history. It was the first attempted insurrection. Uh, the House hearings have thoroughly documented that Trump was its architect and it must be held responsible. Uh, I never believed, I would say, but the very survival of American democracy is in danger. Uh, the Trump presidency and events of November after the November 20th election uh, all reveal the fragility of American democracy. And so you've got Kerminsky who's saying all these things about this legal theory. But he says about Mark Martin, Mark Martin is the ideal person to be the founding dean of the new law school at High Point University. His experience as a lawyer, as chief justice, North Carolina Supreme Court, and as a law school dean all make him superbly qualified to lead this new law school with him at the helm, they are already far on the way to creating an outstanding law school. So uh, this is interesting to me for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first thing is, I think you and I both, Robin, don't believe in what, uh, you know, at least as far as trial lawyers go, guilt by client. Just because you've represented somebody that's been accused of a heinous crime, you know, you, we, we take the cause of our client. That's our job, you know, to do that. And right. Uh, and John and I, Adam, John Adams represented the members of the Boston Massacre. So, yes. And began his argument by saying, if I can but be the instrument of preserving one life, his blessings and tears of transport are sufficient for the contempt of all mankind. Wow. So, so uh, wow. Awesome. You know, uh, I, I'm not critical of uh, Martin for representing President Trump or whatever else. But to me, it's sort of a different thing 
when you're talking about legal theories that are really bizarre, that cannot really be supported by scholarship. I would note that Kerminsky also has on staff there the guy who wrote the 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 terrorism is okay memo, you know, back you're, I mean, I'm sorry, the, the waterboarding is okay uh, memo. Uh, torture is okay. I said terrorism. I meant Yeah, torture. yeah, I got you. Uh, but uh, I, I, I guess I throw this out there for our listeners because I do believe, you know, as Shakespeare said, strive mightily uh, as those in the law do, but eat and drink as friends. On the other hand, there's something that leaves a little distaste uh, about that meal when I see folks that are sort of openly corrupting the law by advocating legal theories that are really not supported anywhere uh, in uh, case law, statutory law, or legal treatises whatsoever. And I think that's what that was. So it's just food for thought. It's, it is concerning. I mean, if it were a, 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 a scientist um, writing a, an issue in a in a scientific journal, and he was just flat making stuff up. He would be called out and probably never write another article. Certainly not be the dean of the of the chemistry war, uh, wing or whatever. But um, Cherminsky, it's also interesting because Erwin Cherminsky, Dean Cherminsky, incredible legal mind. Um, but everyone knows him to be very very liberal. He's from a very very liberal law school at Berkeley, um, I want to say that when we heard him speak out in Hawaii, he predicted the next five rulings of the United States Supreme Court, and he was spot on with every single one of them. them. I sat sat there, and he would say, this is how they're going to rule, and my mouth would drop. I'm like, oh, please, tell me no. And then this past year, that's exactly what happened. So the, the guy is smart. There's no question about that. Great legal scholar. Um, but yeah, that's very interesting because he's so liberal. Um, so neat, neat point. My article that I spotted in the news uh, happened just last month, and it the the headline is "Lawyer Who Missed Deadline After Spending 25 Minutes Trying to File an ECF Electronically Filed Document uh, Gets No Mercy from the Tenth Circuit." And this is about a lawyer in Denver. Uh, who he says, I barely missed the deadline. He got on, for our listeners who aren't lawyers, everything is filed electronically now. So you don't have a clerk go in person to the clerk's office and, and file something in person. You file everything by electronic filing. Um, this is a lawyer in Denver who uh, on the, the 60th, 60th day, at a 60-day deadline to file this, on the 60th night, at 11.40 p.m., attempted to file something electronically, didn't know what he was doing, and didn't get it filed until 12.16 a.m., 16 minutes too late. And the court said, too bad, we're not accepting your filing. You didn't file it correctly. He went all the way to the Tenth Circuit appealing that, and the Tenth Circuit said, sorry, buddy, Um, there was nothing wrong with our system. The problem was user error. You didn't know what you were doing. Um, and you're, you've now committed malpractice for your client because you didn't get this object. It was an objection to a, a bankruptcy. Uh, you didn't get it filed on behalf of your client, which was a bank in Denver. Um, so 
it, and it says during this this time that he was on the electronic filing system, he left the system for 11 minutes to email the complaint and exhibits to opposing counsel. I guess thinking, well, at least I can get them to opposing counsel. Maybe that that will get me off the hook. But the uh, Tenth Circuit showed no mercy on him uh, and didn't 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 reverse. Um, my point about this is, folks, if your lawyer is getting on an electronic filing system and trying to file a pleading on the 60th day of your 60 day deadline at 1140 p.m., you need a new lawyer. That 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 is uh, it, it. I would go with the Tenth Circuit. I think that's inexcusable. And uh, I really don't know why this guy is representing people, because that's not the way you practice law. You know, it's 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 interesting. I think if you divided people into the camps that uh, think that was too harsh and the ones that think it's OK, the ones who think it's too harsh are probably people that say, well, all this technology, you know, how, you know, what what all could go wrong with that? Uh, which I which I appreciate, you know. I'm a I'm a bit of a, a troglodyte, you know, myself uh, when it comes to technology. But on the other hand, you know, if you were if it was the old days when the courthouse closes at five o'clock, right? And you know, you got there whether it was because of a traffic jam, you know, tractor trailer, you get behind a logging truck if you live out here in the the hinterlands with me. When you get there 16 minutes late, the courthouse is locked and uh, the the uh, clerks have gone home, you know, even though you sort of gave it your best efforts, you know, you got there too late. So uh, I, I think uh, I, I think that's probably a recognition that we now have to be sufficiently versed in technology that we're not going to uh, have the courthouse door uh, virtually slammed in our face. Absolutely. I think that is part of our duties. Um, I do remember back in early, early on in my career when I was a defense attorney and we would send a clerk to the court to file something. They would stand in line and it closed at 415 back then. And you would just be on pins and needles until that ser that server, that that um, courier called you and said, OK, I got it filed. And you're like, Phew. Well, and, and the other thing, too, you know, in fairness now. Um, and, and fortunately, I've got some very skilled people in my office that yes, help me did. file these things. Yes. But, you know, one of the interesting things is now a lot of these Georgia state court filing systems, you, you file it. But, you know, when you're talking about the clerk going down, you know, send a runner down, you know, to file this thing, they brought you back the file stamp copy. And that was the gold standard. I mean, you know, if any judge said you file this late, you could hold it up in court and say, here's the stamp tells the time about that. But, you know, a lot of these things that we file uh, electronically now, it doesn't get marked received until right. three days later. You know? Right. You, you get an accepted email and then you're like, Gosh, yeah. So we don't wait until the last day, but uh, you do have great help. And I know you don't ever have to worry about that. I have great help with Nikki Wilson. I don't have to ever worry about getting something filed on time. Thank goodness. Um, so anyway, I just thought that, it was very, very interesting. That, that gives me an idea. We ought to talk about, you know, I have two. I've got Robin Pulliam and Dee Tool who've been with me for 26 and 27 years. We ought to get all the, our legal assistance on a podcast one day <laughs> about 
what it's like being a non-lawyer working for for a lawyer. You know, I, uh, yeah, I think, I think they have great insight into what we do that we're probably blinded to a little bit. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I want to hear what Nikki says about me, but um, she's been she's been with me 25 years through thick and thin. So, yeah, she does. She knows as much as I do. That's for sure. Um, well, Lester, it's been a great time. I, I loved enjoyed. I, I love talking with Lance McMillan and uh, just want to remind our listeners that we want to thank our sponsor, the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. Um, Fred Smith is our executive director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation, and we also want to thank our producer, Philip Hoover, and we thank our listeners. Uh, you can learn more about our host, Lester Tate, at akintate.com, and you can learn more about me, Robin Fraser-Clark, at gatriallawyers.net. You can learn more about our podcast, See You in Court, at cuincourt.squarespace.com. We hope you subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can find See You in Court on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere where you get your podcast. Uh, and we ask that you rate the podcast. If you want to send us any questions or make a suggestion, suggestion about an interesting legal topic, email us at cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. So thanks again, Lester. Great spending the morning with you. And uh, from from Los Angeles, go dogs. Good luck to the dogs tonight. Yeah. I hope it turns out well. Um, and until next time, we'll, see, we'll you see you in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser-Clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.